Hey, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and I would invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 1. And I want to read verses 24 to 29. And always remember that this is God's authoritative, inerrant, inspired, infallible Word. Amen? Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 to verse 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Well, as you know, there are many different kinds of metaphors which can be used to describe the church. If you just do a survey of the New Testament, you're going to find metaphors like the church being a temple, the church being a building, the church is God's field, God's garden. We find that as a metaphor for the church. One of my favorites is is that the church is, is the body of Christ. And I love that because of the emphasis with the body of Christ metaphor of the interconnectedness of that we have in the lives of one another. Um, one of, uh, outside of the Bible, a metaphor that people often use is that the Bible is a hospital. It's like a hospital where we are triaging one another by the grace of God and we're conversing one, one, with one another and we're having conversations so that we are able to help one another move more and more towards conformity to Jesus. And the church is like a hospital because there's a certain healing that takes place in the church, obviously spiritually speaking, first and foremost. I love all of those metaphors which, because they are, they are beautiful and true metaphors that point to the, to the marvel, brethren, that is the church. Amen? One of my favorite metaphors also is not chapter and verse in the Bible, but I like to think of the church as a, as a greenhouse. The church is like a greenhouse for growing and developing plants. If you think about a greenhouse, the conditions are of such a nature in a greenhouse that plants can grow and flourish. In a greenhouse, the temperature is just right, allowing those beautiful plants to get enough oxygen to be able to to grow and get everything that they need. The soil is of such a nature in a greenhouse that plants can receive the, the vitamins and the nutrients that they need to be able to grow and be healthy and strong. The irrigation system inside the greenhouse is good so that those plants can receive the refreshment that they need to grow and to develop. I love that particular metaphor because I think this is what also what the church is like. The church is like a gracious or a greenhouse of grace. A greenhouse of grace. A place where we cultivate an atmosphere where people can grow and develop as highly committed followers, highly committed lovers, and highly committed servants of Christ. It's a place of, of mutual one-anothering where we are looking to invest into one another deliberately and intentionally and purposefully. 
The church is, is where we foster, if you can put it this way, a discipleship culture where we can be spiritually vibrant, where we might be able to thrive as believers individually and collectively, not just survive as Christians. And it's this discipleship culture in the church that I really want us to ponder now in the next three weeks and apply ourselves to. You know, in our summer series titled uh, A Mission-Focused Church, we've already seen, if you remember, the right perspective that we need to have. Remember that? That we need to view ourselves rightly, humbly, in the light of the greatness and the majesty of God. We are brought very low so that as we engage in mission, we are engaging in humility, pointing people to the greatness of who God is. So we need to have the right perspective. We also need to have the right purpose, if you remember. We did a series of sermons in Acts chapter 1 talking about the fact that our purpose is nothing new. We as followers of Jesus take the baton from Christ in accordance with Acts chapter 1 and we are continuing the mission of Jesus in this world. We have a powerful message to proclaim, the message of the Gospel, and we have the powerful Holy Spirit who empowers us to be able to live on mission. So we've seen the right perspective, the right purpose as a mission-focused church. And this morning, I really want us to focus on the right practice. The right practice, which is this discipleship culture. Here in our passage, uh, we have Paul's philosophy of ministry, if you want to think of it this way. This is what Paul was all about as an agent of God to the church. And very quickly, as you unpack this section of chapter 1, verses 24 to 29, you realize that though Paul's apostolic ministry was unique, and none of us are apostles with a capital A, right? If any of you think you're an apostle, come and talk to me afterward, okay? There are no present apostles, amen? All right, all right. There was, that wasn't a very thunderous amen, but I'll take your word for it. Yeah, there you go, brother. So we're not, we don't have an apostolic ministry in the unique way that Paul had an apostolic ministry, right? But some of the same driving principles that were at work in Paul's ministry are at work in our ministry to one another. And the reason I, I say this is because in, because in essence what you have in this particular passage, brethren, specifically verses 28 through 29, is the Great Commission articulated in different language. And as we know, Christians are to be all about the Great Commission. We talked about this for a few sermons. And so, and so these verses really have implications and application for us as well as followers of Jesus. And that, so that's going to be our focus this week and the next couple of Sundays. We want to glean from these verses, and in particular verses 28 and 29, and be challenged concerning what discipleship ministry in the local church consists of. Now I realize that there's a lot of confusion in Christian churches uh, concerning what disciples means or, or uh, comprises a disciple or what discipleship is all about. So let me clarify some terms for us very simply. A disciple is a learner, a follower, or you might say someone who pr- promotes the life and teachings of another. If you're a disciple, you're following Christ, you're a learner of the Word of God, of the Word of Christ, and you are about promoting the life and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a compelling, captivating person in your life. He is your Savior. He is your Redeemer. You want to tell people all about Christ in proclamation, right, as we learned last week, but also in the way that we flesh out a gospel-transformed life. That's what a disciple is, learner, a follower, a promoter of the life and teaching of another. In our case, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What do we mean by discipleship? What do we mean by that? 
Well, that is the ongoing process that every Christian is to be actively engaged in. And if you want a specific definition of discipleship, write this down. And this is going to be a working definition in the next, for the next three Sundays. Discipleship is the ongoing process of cultivating intentional relationships for the purpose of growth in Christ in the context of the local church. Discipleship is that ongoing process of intentionally pursuing relationships for the purpose of growth in Christ in the context of the local church. And we're going to unpack that as we go along in the next three sermons, as you'll see, and talk about the implications of what that means and what that looks like. So this is going to be a a crucial next three weeks for us as a church. And I think we're going to get the message, hopefully by the power of the Spirit of God working in our hearts, brethren, by way of reminder to each of us that the local church is not to be a footnote or an afterthought in our lives, but it is to be the central hub of relationships for us so that we might grow into conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a culture, and you know this in the Pacific Northwest even, this is a culture that is all about non-commitment. This is a culture that is about um, divided commitments. This is a culture that is all about a low status quo kind of life. And people are fixated upon many things in this particular culture. You know this. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be consumed with something that is not worth my, my time. Amen? We're too busy. We have too, too much going on. I want to know that the things that I am invested, investing myself into, my energies, my resources, I'm investing myself into something that is worthwhile. A mission that, that, that lasts beyond this present world, that is eternal. Well, brethren, that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to remind us that Jesus said in Matthew 16 and verse 18, I will build my what? My church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The church belongs to Christ. He died for her. And the church is the one entity that Jesus promised would succeed. The church is the one entity that Jesus promised would not be defeated in this world. So, that it follows then that that's got massive implications for the way that you and I live and where our efforts are directed. And so with all of this said, as a mission-focused church, we really want to ponder how we want to be about this particular right practice, this discipleship culture. So here's the question. What does a discipleship culture mean? What does it look like to foster and to cultivate a discipleship atmosphere where Christians can spiritually flourish, Christians can spiritually be strengthened, where Christians can actually thrive rather than just survive in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation? What does it look like? And to answer these questions, we need to begin right here. If you're taking notes, a discipleship culture where Christians can grow and thrive is first and foremost a Christ-centered culture. A Christ-centered atmosphere, if you will. There should be no doubt when people visit this church into the future, and as we continue to do ministry together, there should be no doubt in people's minds who we seek to exalt among us. Amen? Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. As we've said, He must must be made much of. 
We must decrease and he must increase even in the way that we minister to one another. And so this is where it all begins. Look at the opening words of verse 28. He says, we proclaim him. Who is the, what is the antecedent of that word him? Well, look at the end of verse 27 where it says, the Christ in you, the hope of glory, him we proclaim. The Christ in you, the hope of glory, him we are about proclaiming. We are about living out even the implications of this one. Paul says the center of our ongoing proclamation, brethren, continual proclamation is Christ. We are all about continually making Jesus known. Why? Well, later on in chapter 3 and verse 4, you studied this last fall or spring. Paul says Christ is our life. Christ is our everything. There's nothing and no one greater than Jesus. He is the center and the circumference of everything in our lives. Apart from Him, life is meaningless and purposeless in a very real way. Christ is everything. Notice that it's a, it's a person they proclaim, right? Not an ideology, not a religion, not a philosophy. They proclaim a real person. It's the person and the work of Christ, brethren, that distinguishes biblical Christianity from any other religion, philosophical system, or ideological system in the world. Christ. What people think of Christ is really the line on the sand, if you will. And what you do with Jesus, how you respond to the claims of Christ, how you respond to His saving, loving work has implications for where you'll spend eternity. Think about that. This is why Paul says, we proclaim Christ. In fact, as you studied Colossians as a church prior to me getting here, you learned of the, you learned of the various isms which were infiltrating the Colossian church in chapter 2. Remember that? And Paul made the point, if you're going to be Christ-centered, you do not want to give in to these. It's not Christ plus empty philosophy. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8 Empty philosophy, any belief system that does not point you to Jesus as the center and the circumference of everything is empty philosophy. He says it's not Jesus plus empty philosophy, it's Jesus alone. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16, it's not Christ plus legalism, which is a mere shadow of Christ, but the substance is Jesus Christ himself, his person and his work for your life. It's not Christ plus legalism. It's Jesus alone. It's not Christ, chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. It's not Christ plus mysticism. The sense that, you know, we, we can have these experiences apart from Jesus. No, Jesus is the head and the source of all true knowledge and any mystical, feely, touchy, emotional experience that is apart from Jesus is demonic in nature. Did you hear that? So we need to be very careful. It's not Christ plus mysticism, plus New Age thinking. It's Christ alone. And then in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, he made the point it's not Christ plus asceticism. The belief that you, you can sort of follow a set of do's and especially don'ts that sort of reach you, get you in, into some elite spirituality. Oh no, it's about Jesus alone apart from asceticism. He's made this point. All of these isms run counter to a Christ-centered discipleship culture. And they are not going to lead to holiness in your life. Absolutely not. Every world religion and ideology really... Brethren, falls under one or a combination of these as people seek favor 
before the God with the little g of their particular choice. And so that we need to unpack these ideologies and recognize this. So the whole point is that the person in the work of the Lord Jesus is the single greatest reality that distinguishes biblical Christianity from the syncretistic religions and ideologies of our day. Mark that. I hope that you believe in that by conviction in your heart. This is why Paul says, we proclaim Christ. And notice he says, we proclaim Christ. Whether it's Paul or Epaphras or any ministry partner that he mentions later on in chapter 4, he mentions nine or ten ministry partners that are Paul's gospel partners. Any of us, he says, we are proclaiming Christ. There's no other innovative message. Christ is a centerpiece of our proclamation. There's no other message that takes priority or that trumps the message of Jesus. This highlights the great reality, brethren, that Christ is not just a, a footnote or an afterthought in our lives, but He is the center and the circumference of everything that we ourselves set ourselves out to do. Amen? Just by way of implication, let me ask you, how often just this week have you had Christ at the center of your thoughts? How often this week have you actually contemplated the glory of Christ, the person and the work of Christ, and the implications of that for your life? Let me ask you, in your decision-making, big decisions, little decisions, there are no mundane decisions in the life of a believer. Amen? Or if we're in spiritual warfare, every decision is important. We are in spiritual, there's a real spiritual war going on. How often has Christ and His Word been at the center of your decision-making? Really asking the question, Lord, what do you want me to do in this decision? How do you want me to respond in my heart attitude towards this person in my marriage? with my spouse? How do you want me to respond, Lord, with my, toward my parents? What honors Christ in this decision regarding my education and my career and where I live and where my resources go to and how I spend my energy? How often has Jesus been at the center of your decision-making and your thought life even this week, brethren? That's how we might flesh out a Christ-centered discipleship culture. Amen? Christ is ever before us asking the real question, what does Jesus say in His Word about the way that I ought to live my life? Because this is where He reveals Himself. Ultimately, this is obedience to this book is, is for the glory of God and for your good. Do you understand that? It's not just a, a rule book. This book reveals the glory and the majesty of God and His love for sinners through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to be asking ourselves every single day, how can I honor Christ even as a center of my thoughts and decision-making? in my own pursuits. Now here's the question. Why is Paul so adamant about a Christ-centered approach to life and ministry? Why is he so adamant about this? I mean, what makes Jesus different than any other person or any other God with a little g in our society? What makes Jesus so unique anyway? What is, it so di what is so different about Jesus that necessitates that Christ be the, the focal point of a discipleship culture? What's so different about Jesus? Reasonable question, isn't it? Reasonable question. And to answer this, all we need to do is go back to the previous context of Colossians where the Apostle Paul has established the fact that Jesus is to be the center of our proclamation because He is supreme. He is supreme. Look back with me. In chapter 1, verses 15 and 20. Go there. Just a page back. Maybe it's right there. 
As you're glancing at it, 1, 15 to 20, we were told many things about the Son of God through whom God accomplished redemption. For example, look at verse 15 of chapter 1. We were told that in relation to God, Christ is supreme as God is supreme. See that? Christ is the image of the invisible God, he says. The firstborn of all creation. Image is the word icon, which means that the, that the Son of God shares, listen, the exact same being, essence, and nature of God. Verse 15 also says that Christ is the, is the firstborn. That is the, the idea, the prototokos, the meaning that Jesus is the preeminent one. No one is greater than Christ. I mean, the language of verse 15 makes the point that Jesus is equal to God. All of God's divine attributes, all of God's divine perfections are equally shared by Christ and might I add by the Holy Spirit as well as we learned a few weeks ago. And what this tells us, brethren, is that Christ is not a, a created being as many in our culture say, a lesser being, a derivative of God. Jesus is God, a very God. Amen? He's God. And thus He must be worshipped. He must be the center of our lives. And so note, in relation to God, first of all, Christ is supreme as God is supreme. Thus, He's worthy of worship. But we're not done. In relation to creation, in verses 16-17, through 17, we're told that Jesus is supreme as well. Look at verse 16. For by Him, or in Christ, all things were created. This means all creation is, is dependent upon Jesus. There's nothing that came into being without Jesus, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That pretty much covers everything, doesn't it? All things have been created through Him and for Him. That's a staggering statement about the uniqueness and the greatness and the supremacy and the preeminence of, of Jesus, brethren. Look at verse 17. He, Christ, is before all things, which is to say that Christ is eternal and self-sufficient, dependent on no one for His existence. And in Him all things hold together, which is to say that Christ sustains the universe. Which means, by the way, that if He can sustain the universe and keep this thing going at a high optimum level, He is almighty and all-powerful, isn't He? Boy, he's supreme. He's preeminent. In some, in relation to the created order, verses 16 and 17, Christ is creator. Christ is eternal. He's self-sufficient. He's sustainer of the universe. He is all-powerful, almighty. He is majestic and supreme, isn't he? But we're not done. We're not done talking about the supremacy of Christ. Because now in relation to the church, in verses 18 through 20, we see that Christ is supreme as well. Look at verse 18. He is head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. See that word translated head in verse 18? That is the word, the Greek word kephale, which refers to the fact that Christ is the supreme ruler and the sovereign Lord of His church. This means that He has all authority by virtue of His glorious and victorious resurrection. This is why he is to, to have first place in everything and be central in our lives. We don't have time to cover verses 19 and 20, but there Paul makes the point that Christ is the one through whom the Father will reconcile all things to himself. Christ lived the perfect life that we could not live. He died an atoning death on our behalf, rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, in order that one day we might be rescued, or we might be rescued in the present from God's wrath, and one day stand before the ultimate judge where he's going to judge the living and the dead, and we will be justified, secure in Christ. Amen? Says Christ is supreme. And so note, brethren, by way of summary, 
Why should Christ be central in a discipleship atmosphere? Because in relation to God and creation and the church, He is preeminent. The point is there is no one like Jesus. He is the incomparable one. This is why Paul says we proclaim Christ. He is the center of our proclamation. And he's absolutely worthy of it. It's the point that he made in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1. Now listen, brethren, if this is the case, and it is, then doesn't it follow that in our discipleship culture, we must have Christ as a central, central focal point of everything that we do? Personally, as families, in the life of our church, in the light of who Christ is and what He has done, He is to be first. First. We proclaim Christ as well. And we don't ever move beyond Jesus. We don't ever move beyond Christ and the Gospel in the personal Christian life or in church life. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul tells us that, that Christ is to have first place in everything. We just read that, didn't we? That's a statement of fact. Christ is supreme regardless of what you do or not. But He's also to be supreme in our experience. He's to be supreme in how we live and how we do discipleship ministry in the church. Our mantra, brethren, must be we proclaim Christ. Do you understand the significance of that? Without Christ, there is no Christian ministry. Without Christ, there is no Christian church. Without Christ, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without Christ, there is no peace with God through Jesus Christ. Without Christ, there is no reconciliation with God. Without Christ, brethren, the trials and the sufferings of this present world are for naught but vain and useless. Without Jesus, your marital problems are ultimately hopeless. Without Jesus, your parental struggles are ultimately purposeless and hopeless. Without Jesus, there is no hope beyond this present tumultuous world. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Right? Ichabod. Without Christ, all the devastation these past few years, all of the wickedness that we have witnessed, all of the godlessness, and the tumultuousness of our culture that we witness in our, even in our own country and in the world is reason to despair because there is no victorious, conquering Christ who is returning to judge the living and the dead and there is no future new heavens and new earth where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more trials. Without Christ, life is purposeless and useless. You see the significance? This is why we proclaim Christ. He is our only hope, brethren. He must be central in everything that we do. This is why we worship Him on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. This is why we sing praises to Him. This is why we adore Him. This is why we treasure and cherish Jesus. All of these are implications of the centrality of, of Christ in our lives. Now, I realize that when we say that discipleship ministry is Christ-centered, it may still sound quite vague and ambiguous to some of us. So what do we further mean by Christ-centered discipleship ministry? This is also for your outlines as you take notes. I think first, letter A, it means that we're always mindful in a Christ-centered discipleship culture of the priority of evangelism. Write that down. The priority of evangelism as part of our culture here in the church. In a Christ-centered discipleship 
oriented atmosphere. We're always concerned about where people are at before God in terms of their relationship with God. Whether they are right with God through confident trust in the risen Jesus, whether it be in our teaching, whether it be in our preaching, whether it be in our small groups, whether it be in your adult Sunday schools, whether it be in your home groups, whether it be in in student ministries or in our counseling, intensive counseling with people or informal discipleship and counseling with others, we must always be discerning with the wisdom that God can give us where you and where other people are at in their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is where it begins. People must come to know Christ in a personal way by repenting of their sins and placing their confident trust in, in Christ. But oftentimes we can gather, and it's almost as if we forget that there are people who are really wrestling in, with where they're at before God, that they are really non-believers, right? But we get accustomed to seeing people around us People doing things even externally. And then we find out down the line that their hearts were never there. They never had made a commitment to Christ. They never had transferred trust from self or other things to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And so in a discipleship culture where Christ is central, we must always have an evangelistic mindset. Realizing that not everybody amongst us is a believer. Is that a shocking thing to say? Let me personalize this for you. It begins with you this morning, if you have not given your life to Jesus, you taking ownership of your faith in Jesus, simply being a part of a Christian family, attending for many years, knowing a lot of intellectual uh, things about the Bible, or even giving assent to those things intellectually. Those things don't save you or guarantee that you are in Jesus. Have you truly turned from your sins and put your confident trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? The priority of evangelism is an emphasis in a Christ-centered discipleship culture. People's relationship to God through Jesus should matter to us, brethren. Paul makes this point. If you go with me to Colossians 2 and verse 6, go there. Chapter 2 and verse 6. Notice what he says. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, as you have, ready, received Christ Jesus the Lord. See that? Received. There is an initial reception of Christ, an embracing of Christ, a commitment to Christ that must be made in your life. A time, whether you remember the moment or the season of life, from a divine perspective, there was a moment of regeneration and you being born again, yes, but there should be a time when you abandoned all self-trust and transferred that trust to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. This is what it means By as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. He's talking about that initial commitment. We'll talk about the follow-up to that later on. This evangelistic mindset then has implications for everything, including the way that we are constantly helping one another discern with grace and patience and love where people are at in their relationship with God through Jesus. Hear me, we should never, ever assume that every person who simply attends this church is born again. Amen? We should never assume that. We shouldn't ever conclude that just because someone's grown up in the church, knows a lot of information, even gives intellectual assent to truths, or has been around for a long time, is truly redeemed. You say, but they were here with us and they were in the fellowship potlucks and all of that that you like, Pastor Kempis, those potlucks. I mean, they were around. They were highly committed contributors to that. Listen, Hebrews 6 speaks of the apostate kind of person. 
The kind of person who, who loves the things of God, is around the things of God, is around the people of God, even derives certain benefits from being around in the church who tasted of the goodness of God and tasted of this and tasted of that, but eventually they're nowhere to be found. You know what that's called? Apostasy. But they, never, they tasted, but they never appropriated. They never digested the truth. They never appropriated Christ, His person and His work for their own lives in a personal way. That never happened, and eventually they're nowhere to be found. That's called apostasy. And thus, you and I should never take for granted that people who are around in our small groups or even desire to serve are regenerate. Now, to be sure, what is the balancer in this? We certainly don't want to walk around navel-gazing one another. Oh, let's see. You know, I'm like the Holy Spirit walking around, right? Let's see how many non-believers I can find amongst us. Don't do that. We shouldn't walk around with a sort of self-righteous, judgmental navel-gazing, having this subtle expectation that we won't struggle, that there won't be weaknesses amongst us, brethren. We know that we're not perfect. We're sinners saved by grace. We're in a constant process of sanctification. That's what sanctification is, right? We are progressively, incrementally becoming more and more like Jesus. And that never ends in this life. So we must be careful. But in a discipleship culture where Christ is central, we are lovingly challenging one another to make sure that we've made that definitive commitment to Christ. And not only that, but that we are fleshing out that commitment to Christ in our personal and corporate lives. We need to discern whether there's reasonable, spirit-empowered, sincere fruit in our lives. And let me be loud and clear. We don't believe Biblical Christianity does not believe that Christian fruit is what saves us. Amen? Amen. We don't believe in that. Christ saves. But God does produce and expect fruitfulness as the byproduct and result of, of genuine regeneration and the Holy Spirit working in and through your life. That's true as well. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Yes. Paul prays. Look at chapter 1 and verse 10. You want some proof? Chapter 1, verse 10, he says that, Praise for these believers that you will walk or live in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. And here it is, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Does God desire works as, as believers? Absolutely. Listen, we are not saved on the basis of good works. Notice the distinction. We are not saved on the basis of good works. We are saved unto good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are His workmanship. Remember that text? His poema. His masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for or unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not saved on the basis of our good works, but God desires that we would flesh out Spirit-empowered good works and be fruitful and be productive in the Christian life. Amen? Titus speaks about this. Do a survey of Titus this week and just write down how many verses in the book of Titus Paul writes to Titus that our people need to learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, that they would not be unfruitful. That one is at the end of Titus chapter 3, but he talks about adorning the doctrine of God our Savior as believers in every respect through the way that we live, through our fruitfulness, through spirit-empowered good works. Amen? Amen. That's important. Read 1 John. 
Where love and obedience and a desire for Christian fellowship and a commitment to right doctrine and a commitment to personal devotion and holiness are the inevitable, necessary, spirit-produced fruit of a person who is truly in fellowship with Christ. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 4. Which he says, I, I, I'm writing these things that you might have assurance, that you might experience fullness of joy. Here's how you might experience it. How's, how are these things evident in your life? Listen, brethren or friends, if those things are not reasonably and consistently evident in your life, what makes you think that you're a Christian? What makes you think that you're born again? Boy, Pastor Kempis, that's really harsh. Not at all. It's actually loving. Right? I'm simply telling you what the Word of God says. For your good. For your good. Because you don't want to be the person who stands before God someday and he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. You don't want to be that person. It's for your good that I'm reminding you. Friend, through the truth and love, to make sure that you've made that commitment. If that is you, seek God now at a time when He can be found. Put your confident trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone and in nothing else. And so in a discipleship culture, to be Christ-centered means that we continually prioritize evangelism amongst us. We will be mindful of the priority of evangelism, that people's lives are truly Truly in a saving way, centered on Christ. They're truly fleshing that out in the way that they follow after Christ. Letter B, as you take notes, it also means, this Christ-centered discipleship culture, it also means that we will be mindful of the priority of edification among us. The priority of edification. By edification, we mean that we prioritize the, the building up of one another. It means that we long to see Christ formed in the lives of each other. Look again in verse 28 for this. He says, We proclaim Him, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and, and teaching every man with all wisdom. Boy, that right there is loaded, by the way. We're going to see that next week. But here it is. So that we may present every man or woman or person complete in Christ. In a discipleship culture where Christ is central, our goal and our purpose, brethren, will be to see people come to know Jesus and people become more and more like Christ. Remember, remember our working definition of discipleship. The ongoing process of cultivating intentional relationships for the purpose of growth in Christ, right? Or conformity to Christ in the context of the local church. Discipleship. This means that we're mindful of edification, of people, people being built up in Christ and developed in Christ, right? It's similar to a, a baby's development, right? I got an opportunity wonderfully to see my sweet wife, right? We always say we have six kids, uh, five on earth, one in heaven. I got a chance to see her um, uh, raise our little ones, our babies, our newborns. And it was so sweet to see. It's, it's perfectly normal for that baby when that baby is, is a newborn to partake of their mother's milk or formula, right? You expect that in a baby, but then, equally, you expect that as that baby develops, that baby progresses to, to Gerber food, right? Gerber food. Some of us dads had to learn what Gerber food was and that there are even different levels, level one, level two, level, all of that stuff. My wife would, I'd come back with level two and she'd, honey, the, the baby's in level three now. I'm like, well, just, just adjust it a little bit. Make it a level three, right? 
So we understand that. As that baby progresses and, and grows, they move to higher levels of Gerber food. Level one, level two, level three. That's a beautiful picture, brethren, of, of the, the Christian life. A baby Christian begins partaking of that spiritual milk, spiritual formula, if you will. But as that Christian grows and develops, they progressively partake of more and more solid spiritual food. Eventually, they're having some some spiritual filet mignon. You know what I'm saying? They're growing. They're maturing. That is normal. That is to be our focus in a Christ-centered discipleship culture. We want to see one another mature in, in Christ. In fact, Paul alludes to this progress of growth and development in chapter 2 and verse 6. Go there. Remember this verse, chapter 2 and verse 6? He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, that's the initial commitment, here it is, so walk in Him. You don't ever move away from Him. So walk in Him or lead your life in Christ, having been firmly rooted and being built up in Him and established in your faith. Paul says, having received Him, Don't stay stagnant. Stay connected to Jesus, rooted in Jesus. You can't do anything apart from Jesus and the gospel, but grow up, Christian. Mature. So, Christian, this morning, are you growing up? Are you maturing? Are you pursuing Christ? Are you pursuing obedience? You say, well, it's, it's let go and let God, right? No, it isn't. No, it isn't. No, justification is point in time, right? We are declared righteous in Christ, point in time. That is objective outside of you as a person. You do nothing to be justified. It's by faith alone, faith alone, in Jesus alone, his person and his work. But sanctification is a line, isn't it? It's an ongoing progress, and you are to be actively, aggressively involved in that. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. We get the word gymnasium from that term rigor and sweat right but at the end of the day we know that it's the spirit of god empowering us to even be able to do that energizing us to be able to pursue christ are you growing up are you pursuing christ and maturing as a believer listen christian your heavenly father is glorified in the fact that now you are no longer an enemy of his but you are a child of his you are his friend your father is glorified and he is happy about the fact that you and I are not part of His spiritual family, but your Heavenly Father, because He loves you and because He cares and because He's a good God, desires that you would continue to grow up and mature and be productive and be fruitful in the Christian life. Amen? This pleases the Lord. He wants us to become more and more like Christ. By the way, a corporate implication of this, if, if our purpose and our goal is to see people becoming more and more like Jesus then that's going to an implication of this is that we are going to be willing to step back and assess our structures and assess how we are set up to make sure that we are facilitating and not deterring people but we are facilitating people uh, to build relationships with one another meaningful relationships by which they are pointing one another to Jesus all the more right whether that be our small groups, our adult Sunday schools, whatever that is in church life, we're going to be willing to assess that. What will be most conducive, we're going to be asking, to people actually fleshing out biblical Christianity in terms of life-on-life discipleship? We're going to learn that even more the next couple of Sundays. That's an implication of this. And so please know, being Christ-centered has implications for both the non-believer and the believer. 
We will be mindful that the non-Christian make that initial commitment to surrender their life to Christ. We will be mindful that the Christian, the current follower of Jesus, is continually being built up in Christ. This is why Paul says we proclaim Christ. Christ is to be proclaimed for evangelism and Christ is to be proclaimed for edification. Now, can I give you one further implication of fleshing this out? The centrality of Christ in a discipleship culture? Um, and I mentioned this because as people hear about this oh, right away, you know, you throw up a red flag, you say, uh-uh, gotcha. You, what you are calling, Pastor Kempis, is for a higher level of commitment. Amen. Preach it. I am. We need to be highly committed participants rather than passive spectators. Yes? That is just biblical Christianity. That's not some radical Christian. We're talking about biblical Christianity. It's normal to be a highly committed participant instead of a passive spectator in the church. So it is us calling one another to what God says in His Word about being highly committed participants in the life of the body. Yes. You say, well, you don't understand my history. I have a long history. I have some baggage in the past. And you know what? I believe you. Taking you at face value. You know, uh, there, are, there are bad experiences that I have had. There is baggage from the past that I have. People have hurt me. People have burned me. Even leaderships have burned me. Hey, taking you at face value, I believe you. Yes. On and on, the excuses go for all of us. Can I just say this? If I use those excuses, brethren, then you wouldn't have a pastor here at Eastridge. Because there have been many injustices and many hurts, and if I took that and I said, ah, I'm done with this Christianity thing, or I'm done with this ministry thing, I wouldn't be here today. Can I get amen to that for you guys? This is a story of your life as well. Many of us have been hurt, and we've hurt others as well. Yes? Many of us have experienced injustices, and we have been those who have practiced injustice towards others as well. We don't have to remember the latter part of that and how we have hurt others as well, but I get it. I get the history, I get the baggage, and all of that. And if that's you, taking you at face value, even if you've had bad experiences, listen to me, that's no excuse for living there, for staying non-committed. This past baggage and your hurts and your pains may help explain why you have certain insecurities, but they do not justify your lack of commitment. And at the end of the day, may I remind you, if you are living in that state of non-commitment in your following of the Lord Jesus Christ, as expressed even in the centrality of the church in your life, if that is you, you are not glorifying God. You are not edifying your brethren who don't have the opportunity of even getting to know you and being edified by you. And you are doing yourself harm. I've seen it many times, brethren. You're harming yourself. Sin and weaknesses and propensities towards sin grow in isolation. We need to run towards community, towards the centrality of Christ, and as the expression of that is the centrality of His church, and running towards community. And if that is you, may I also remind you of this. Past pains and past hurts, even if legitimate, can also quickly turn to present bitterness and resentment. I've seen that in my own life, and I've seen that in the life of others whom I've counseled. 
In other words, if you don't deal with your heart, yes, even legitimate hurts and legitimate pains can be turned into a sinful desire for you to turn around and use that as a weapon to inflict pain upon others because after all, they hurt you first. You know what I'm saying? We've all done it explicitly or subtly. My brethren, people who want to give up on the church or on a high level of commitment or are unmotivated to serve, sin this way because they have fixed their eyes on people ultimately and not on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. Yes? Fix your eyes on Christ. Even leaders stumble and fall. Yes? Even leaders. Other brethren. And you will stumble and fall too. None of us have arrived. So you honor your leaders, you obey your leaders. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 speaks of this, that we need to obey our leaders because they keep watch over, their, over your souls. But we recognize at the end of the day, we're sinners saved by grace just like you are. Christ, Christ alone is the one whom you need to fix your eyes on, brethren. Christ. We will let one another down and you have... Let others down, but Christ will never let you down. Amen? He will never let you down. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1-3 through 3 is so helpful here. Listen to this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Speaking of the Christian race, how? How, brother or sister? Fixing or looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see how we never move away from Christ in a Christ-centered discipleship culture? We always are fixing our eyes on Jesus. He is the core, uh, 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 core of everything that we're pursuing. Fix your eyes on Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for our great salvation. Father, thank you for Christ. It is not a chore or a burden ever to reflect upon the beauty of Christ and the greatness of who Christ is, both his person and his work, as the implications for how we live our life. Thank you for that privilege. Father, I pray that on the shoulders of that, of a right understanding of his person and his work, that we would be people who would be all about fostering and cultivating together in community a culture and atmosphere amongst us where we are highly committed participants rather than passive spectators. Help us to be highly invested into one another. Help us to love one another. Help us to even be open and teachable. Lord, new ways that you might do that amongst us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.